Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. Today, we give you a speech from Convention of State's endorser David Barton, an American historian and founder of Wall Builders. This recording is from the 2019 COS Leadership Summit. Enjoy. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thank y'all. Be seated. I'm going to go through a lot of slides tonight, a lot of history tonight. I want to see if I can put some perspective on it. So, uh, and, and first off, thank you guys for having me here. I appreciate that opportunity very much. Uh, and by the way, thank you, Hawaii. I appreciate this lay very much. I'm very, it's, thank you guys. Very, very gracious of you. Looking at the Convention of States and what it's about all is based on the Constitution. I mean, what we're doing is using a constitutional tool to preserve the Constitution. In doing that, Article 5, what I hope to do tonight is give you a little background history perspective to maybe better understand why we do what we do and how this came to be. There's a philosophy behind it. I really like looking at things kind of from the 30,000-foot view. It's a whole lot easier for me. I've been in politics for a long time, held political office. I've trained thousands of people for office, recruited hundreds. It's a whole lot easier for me to handle a campaign once I can see what all all the pieces are. And once I see that, then I know where to move within that. It's kind of like surveying a battlefield in the same way you would a battlefield. So in looking at the Constitution, what I want to start with is really the difficulty we have today. Why are we even needing to do something like Article 5? Why are we wanting Convention of States? It's really because of what's happened to the Constitution, and a lot of that's because of the way school has dealt with the Constitution. I speak in a lot of universities, a lot of colleges. I've been appointed by a number of states and state boards of education, governors, to write the history and social studies standards in the states. And we really have a very, very bad view of the Constitution. We, we teach it really a, a bad view. We, it, it's a living document. You may remember that the first time that was used in a presidential debate was between Bush and Gore back in 2000 when they were asked in the debate, what kind of justices would you put on the courts? And one says living Constitution, which was Gore. The other says original intent. Living Constitution is a very appealing thought, and this is what young people particularly are taught now, is that we have a living Constitution, and the reasons a living Constitution is the other one's outdated. I mean, you look at what the Founding Fathers have done, and if you think about it logically, this is the, this is the phrase that's often used in colleges, the dead should not rule the living. Now, that makes a lot of sense. If I'm a young person looking toward the future, I don't want a bunch of old dead guys telling me how to live my life. I want the optimism, I want the brightness, I I want the things that come in the future. I want to make a difference, and I don't want a bunch of old dead guys telling me how to live. And so this is a very appealing set of rhetoric, and so without even thinking about what the Constitution represents or what it's done, they start dismissing it because they don't want a bunch of old dead guys running their lives. Now within that framework, what they do is they say, okay, if you'll think about the Founding Fathers, and this is part of the, the way that young people are taught, you think about the Founding Fathers, these guys lived at a time when horses were transportation. When they, they wrote with quill and pen and ink. Do you want to do that today? No, you don't. You want all the technology you can have. Look how far we've come in the last 200 years. I mean, just look literally at where we are with communication. Look how far we've evolved with communication. And look how far we've evolved with transportation. Instead of having that horse and buggy and walking everywhere, look how far we've come. Do you really want guys who live back in that era to tell you today how to live your life? 
they don't understand our technology. They don't understand what we face. They don't understand the, the situations, problems we have. Do you really want somebody who grew up with quill and ink and horse to tell you how to live? And so that's the kind of presentation that's given in the Constitution. People just immediately dismiss it because it, it really, it, it's outdated. It's just, quite frankly, we don't need it anymore. It's expired. It, we, we need something different. And that's the call for a living Constitution. This has taken on a whole judges. This is a Judge Posner. He is a court of federal court of appeals senior judge, I think the Seventh Circuit. He is calling on judges across the United States to ignore the Constitution. It's outdated. We need to stop studying it. The Constitution needs to go. If you look even on the Supreme Court, Justice Breyer on the Supreme Court wrote a book two years ago calling us to get rid of the Constitution. We've moved way past it. We need something different other than that. Um, and right now, the, the court is out of session. They go out of session last week of, Jan of, of June. They come back in the first week of October. And generally, in that period of time, they travel a lot and they go to a lot of younger nations help with judicial systems. That's one thing Ginsburg really enjoys doing. She goes to a lot of nations. She tries to help younger s systems. And she tells them openly, do not use the Constitution of the United States as your model. It's a terrible document. You don't want to use that. Use something from South Africa or Nigeria. She gives all these other nations that you should use their Constitution. So this is the kind of undertone that we face. And this is, this is the education that's producing political leaders. This is the education that's producing government officials and bureaucrats and others. And this is the way they think. And, and the document itself is just not that, that significant anymore. So what's the response? How do you respond to the rhetoric that we shouldn't be bound by people who lived 200 years ago who don't have a clue what we're facing today? The way I respond, I was recently asked to go to Ukraine and help Ukraine write a new constitution. When they separated from the Soviet Union back in 92, they wrote a constitution, but they hadn't had freedom in a long time, really didn't know how to do a constitution. It hasn't worked out real well for them. They need something different. And so over there, I was speaking to their government schools and their law schools and et cetera. And I said, okay, I'm from America. I can tell you how we do it in America, but you really don't want what America has done. What you want is you want the right principles. And so I said, let, let, me, let me introduce you to these four guys. These are all four scientific names. Most of you will probably recognize these names. And you look at what these scientists have done and how long ago they lived. Most of them lived four to 500 years ago, long before the Founding Fathers. Kepler, you see 1571 to 1630. Kepler is the guy who gave us the laws of planetary motion. Now, it's because of what Kepler did more than 500 years ago that we're able to do interplanetary space travel today. Now, I guarantee you at the time Kepler did his laws, of, his, his laws of interplanetary motion, he was not thinking someone would leave the orbit of the Earth. He didn't even know Earth had an orbit. He didn't even know how it would get anywhere. He wasn't thinking that. But you see, what we did was we took principles, and principles are timeless. Principles do not change over time. And you can take the principles and add new technology to it, which is why our Constitution is so cool. Our Constitution is not built around technology that gets outdated. We use principles that never change, and those principles that do not change, you add technology to it, and you you start having interplanetary space travel. Not only do we go to the moon, now we're on our way to Mars, so let's do that. This is all based on something that's 500 years old. What if we said, let's get rid of science that's over 200 years old? We don't want any science over 200 years old. You know, that would be ridiculous. Yeah, that's the point. And see, this is where you can help people understand that these are sound principles we're talking about. In the same way, when you go to Robert Boyle, he's the guy who gave us Boyle's loss of gases. It's because of what he did over four centuries ago that I can scuba dive today. I love scuba diving. 
He didn't have any clue that someone would be underwater breathing. Didn't know that was even possible, but we take Boyle's Law of Gases, and because of that, we're able to breathe underwater. We're able to scuba dive. Same thing happens with Blaise Pascal. He's the guy who gave us the laws of fluid pressure. Those laws are timeless. It's because of that that up to five, six, seven years ago on ESPN2, you could watch all the lowrider competition, watch those cars bouncing around. Now, Blaise Pascal didn't even know what a car was, much less that you could bounce at eight, ten feet in the air because of hydraulics. Everything about hydraulics goes from the laws of fluid pressure. So that comes from something that's hundreds of years old. And look how well and how much we use it today. The same thing when you go to Isaac Newton, what he did with physics, what he did with optics, what he did with so many things, including the laws of motion. If it was not for understanding the laws of motion, particularly the second law of motion and Bernoulli's principle associated with it, we could never fly a plane. I'm a pilot. I fly planes. I can only do so because I understand Newton's second law of motion and Bernoulli's principle that is the corollary of it. So we take all this really, really, really old stuff and because of it, we're really advanced today. We take and add new technology, and that's the way the Constitution is. So if you can understand that things are built on principles, that timeless principles produce beneficial new things, that's the appeal that you can use with whatever generation it is. It's not that we're using the fifth, we're, not, we're using Article 5 of the, of the Constitution because it's great and we've had it for 232 years. No, we're using it because it represents a principle. And what I want to show you tonight is the principle behind why they did Article 5 of the Constitution. And timeless principles, I think, are really good. And by the way, while we're here at Williamsburg, right down the road in Williamsburg, there is a founding father's home, George Mason. George Mason was one of the 55 individuals who wrote the Constitution in the United States. He's a delegate at the convention. But he's one of 16 individuals who refused to sign the Constitution. He would not sign it. He went home and said, I won't greater limitations on the federal government. We've all got good intentions now, but I don't believe the federal government will remain small. I think it will do what every other government history has done. That's become big and become oppressive and take the rights away from the people. And so that's why he started calling for the addition of amendments to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights specifically. He's actually known as the father of, of the Bill of Rights. The work he did is what resulted in having the Bill of Rights added to the Constitution to limit the role of the federal government. What he feared back then is exactly what happened. He understood human nature. Human nature doesn't change over time. Even though they had the best of intentions, government has grown well beyond the limited scope that they all thought they had at that point in time. So when you look at, at George Mason, one of the things he did was back in May of 1776, he wrote the, the, the uh, Virginia Constitution. Now, he wrote the Virginia Constitution two months before we signed the Declaration independence. So essentially, Virginia said, we're out of here. We're, we're doing our own declaration. We're having our own constitution. We're sitting inside the royal governor. We're, we're doing our own. And in that, now Virginia's gone through several state constitutions when they became part of the Confederacy, new constitution, coming back in after the Confederacy, new constitution. So they've had several constitutions, but nonetheless, they have kept in their constitution throughout that time the statement that George Mason made. And so it's a terrific statement. George Mason said, no free government or the blessings of liberty can be preserved to any people but by a frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. The only way you keep your liberties is you have to keep going back to core principles. Now, I like that phrase, a frequent recurrent to fundamental principles. And by the way, we're in the middle of sports season right now. We're, we're starting to look at the end of baseball season. We finished hockey season. We're now looking at the start of basketball season. We're in, you know, tonight there are six NFL games going on. So you look at all these pro athletes, these guys that are out there, and I don't care what sport you take, 
The person who is the MVP of any sport you want to choose is the person who does the basics better than anyone else. He does the fundamental principles. The guy who wins the, the, who's going to win the MVP in baseball, it's not because he came up with something new. It's because he hits the ball better, he throws better, he feels better, he does all the basic stuff better than anyone else. And that's the same with basketball and anything. It's a frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. So those fundamental principles, the Constitution is built on a certain set of fundamental principles. If you don't understand the principles, you won't understand what they were trying to get at and how to apply those principles today because while time changes, principles don't change. They're like science. They're there forever. They're immutable laws that will not change. So as you look at those, what we want to do is all right, Article 5. What does it represent? Why is it there? Why did they put that provision in the Constitution, what were they thinking? What did they anticipate might happen? Why is it there? And so let me see if I can take you through some of that. Now, in doing that, I want to just put a tone out there for what the Constitution has produced, just to understand where we are. And sometimes we take a lot of things for granted. But I love what President Calvin Coolidge said back in his day as president back in the 1920s. He said, the more I study the Constitution, the more I realize that no other document devised by the hand of man has brought so much progress and happiness to humanity. He says, to live under the American Constitution is the greatest political privilege that was ever accorded to the human race. Now that's a pretty profound statement. That's great hyperbola about the Constitution, but yeah, can you prove it? I think we can. When you look at where America is today, we're one of 195 nations that are part of the UN. So nations come and go, there's new nations every year, and that number goes up, 193, 197, 189. We're at 195 right now, that's how many nations we have. When you look at where we are, we have had in our history one constitution. So Americans, we've had one constitution. Look at how many constitutions other nations have had in a similar period of time or a shorter period of time. Imagine living in other nations and having constitutions as often as all these other nations do. In the period of time that we've had one, look at all the other nations, how many dozens many of those nations have had. I was in, in Poland last year, took a congressional delegation to Poland. We were with the prime minister and I, I talked to people in Poland, alive in Poland. I talked to people who have lived through seven constitutions in their lifetime in Poland. If you're a baby boomer in South Korea, you've had six constitutions and we consider South Korea a stable nation. So the question becomes, what's the average length of a constitution in the history of the world? And the answer is 17 years. May I point out, we've been 232 years with our constitution. That's just a little bit different from the rest of the world. I think, I think those principles might work after all. You know, as old as they are, we still have stability and we're the most prosperous. Matter, matter of fact, let me just give you examples. Where we are with things like creativity. America represents 4% of the world's population. If you, if you measure international creativity, our creativity, you can do that through international copyright, patent protection, et cetera. Every single year, America produces more medical discoveries, more cures, more scientific discoveries. We produce more, uh, we, we produce more plays, more symphonies, more DVDs, more entertainment, more of everything than the other 96% of the world combined. Now, 4% of the world's population should produce 4% of the world's whatever. Our 4% produces more than the other 96%, and we do this every year. I was in Germany recently, was over some military bases over there, and while I was there, I'm a cowboy from Texas, and I got to stay at a five-star German hotel, and that was really cool for this cowboy to stay at a really highfalutin hotel like that, and it would have been really nice if they would have had internet at that five-star hotel. <laughs> 
I'll point out, Motel 6 has internet. I just, see, we are so surrounded with stuff that we don't realize how blessed we are. And, and the same thing even with, with our prosperity. Our little 4% of the world's population, every year we produce 25% of the world's gross domestic product. And it's not because we have more, because that's not true. So many nations have greater natural resources. For example, being a rancher, that puts me in agriculture. Agriculture is 1% of America's GDP. And yet our 1% every year, we produce enough food to feed the entire world every year, just out of American farmers and ranchers. Now here's the deal. America is only number 66 in the world in percentage of farmable land. There are 65 nations have a higher percentage of farmable land than we do, and yet we take what we have and make it go further than any other nation in the world. There's so many things that come out of America, and we're just, we're so used to this, we just take it for granted. And we can gripe about it, and we can complain about it, because it's all we've ever known. But we're not like people in other nations who have had that instability and that turmoil. And so it's things that we take for granted in academics and sit there and criticize it all day long. Kids don't know any difference. They know what they've been taught. They know what they're going to be tested on. And so this is the kind of mentality that we're really fighting in America that's behind all this. So this American exceptionalism, what are the principles that produce it? Because principles are everything. Well, the principles that produced American exceptionalism, the founding fathers, prolific writers, they wrote everything down. And so when you look at their writings, you find that particularly in the National Birth Certificate, they gave us six immutable principles of government that are 161 words. I want to take you through those six principles real quick, then you'll see where Article 5 fits in, what their thinking was and how we got there. By the way, I did say declaration. I thought we were talking about Article 5 of the Constitution, not the declaration. We are. But you have to understand the declaration to understand the Constitution. So why do the declaration? Well, pretty easy. If you look at the two documents, it's like we today think the Constitution is the document. That's not what the founding fathers thought. That's not how they thought. As a matter of fact, Sam Adams, the father of the American Revolution, he said before the formation of the Constitution, the Declaration was received and ratified by all the states in the Union and has never been disannulled. The Constitution did not replace the Declaration, not at all. We set forth all the principles in the Declaration. That's where all the good stuff is. In the Constitution, we showed you how to apply the principles. The principles are in the Declaration. You have the same thing with John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams said the Declaration Declaration of Independence was a platform upon which the Constitution of the United States was erected. Are you going to say you want to keep the building but don't want to keep the foundation? How stupid would that be? The building will fall in if you take the foundation out from under it. Declaration is the foundation of the Constitution. He said the principles proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence were embodied in the Constitution of the United States. All the stuff they talked about in the, Constitu in the Declaration is what they put in the Constitution. That's why you have to understand the Declaration to know what Article 5 in the Constitution means. So when you look at these two documents and how they go together, a lot of the times we say, why did they do that? What was the purpose of that clause in the Constitution or in Declaration, etc.? And I love what the U.S. Supreme Court said in 1892. 1892, the Supreme Court said, if you want to understand what the intent was, they said, you need to determine the evil which is intended to be remedied. In other words, they passed a bill to stop a particular problem. If you can figure out what that problem was they were trying to fix, then you'll know what the intent of that law was. And if you don't know the intent, then you'll misapply laws at times. You'll end up doing things that we now call overcriminalization. You get thrown in jail for, for things that weren't crimes when the bill was written, never intended to be a crime, that was not what they were after. But some good bureaucrat reads it in a certain way and comes up with a new interpretation. So you want to go back to original intent as often as you can. Let me give you an example out of the Constitution of why you want to say, why did they put that in there? 
Article 1, Section 5, Paragraph 4 says, Neither House during the session of Congress shall, without the consent of the other, adjourn for more than three days, nor than to any place other than that in which the two houses shall be sitting. Huh? What? All right, what's the intent of that? See, here's the deal. We don't get the intent of that today. We don't understand why they did that. But if you want to understand, what you need to do is you go back and read grievance number four in the Declaration. There are 27 grievances in the Declaration explaining what they were ticked off about and what the British government was doing that they thought were bad principles. And so when you read our grievance four in the Declaration and then read that clause in the Constitution, you go, oh, that's why they did that. Now I get it. Now I know why you can't have either house dismissed without the approval. Of the, now I understand what they're trying to do here. And it's the same thing with, with grievances throughout the Declaration. You just take a grievance in the Declaration, you'll find it solved in the Constitution. You see in the Declaration they said, here's the problem. In the Constitution they said, here's the solution. So if you want to know why they did what they did, go back and see what they were talking about and why they created that clause. So that's why the Declaration cannot be separated from the Constitution. It's a modern era movement to separate the two. Uh, I hear political people say, look, I took an oath to uphold the Constitution. I didn't take an oath to uphold the Declaration. No, yes, you did. You just didn't know it. As a matter of fact, if you look at what happens with the Constitution, the Constitution itself, in Article 7 of the Constitution, it's interesting to see the way the Constitution is dated. In other words, when they wrote the Constitution, they closed it in Article 7 saying, Done a convention by the unanimous consent of the states present in the 17th year of September in the year of our Lord, 1787 period. Oh, wait, that's not a period, that's a comma. Now, we would have put a period there. We said, we've done this in September, September the 17th, 1787. This is when we, do it. This is when we sign it. That's not what they said. They said, we've done this in September 1787, which is in the 12th year of our independence. So what they did was they dated the Constitution back to the Declaration. That's why from the time of the Constitution, every single federal act signed by every president of the United States, George Washington, first act he signed, he dated that first act back to the Declaration of Independence. They don't date the bills back to 1787. Every federal bill is dated back to 1776. Every single one, because that is the founding document. The Constitution simply shows you how the principles in the Declaration would work. And that's why to this day, every bill that President Trump has signed, he signed it in the year of the sovereignty and independence of the United States, 1776. Everything dates back to that. The Constitution dates back. It was not a replacement document for the, for the Declaration. So understanding that, this is why if you want to become part of the United States, there are certain statehood requirements, call them enabling acts. You have to make a covenant. You have to agree with what you're going to do as a state, a territory for coming in. And so if you take the enabling act of something like Utah or Oklahoma or Dakota, any of those territories, any territory became a state in the United States, 32 territory, ter territories became states, you had an enabling act. That enabling act says you cannot be part of the United States unless you agree to uphold the principles of the Declaration and the specifics of the Constitution. All the enabling act said you have to uphold both documents. You can't be part of the United States if you don't uphold both documents. So we've always thought that this was the basis. And see, this is where if you don't understand the Declaration, you don't understand the principles we're contending for with Article 5. You've got to know why we're doing what we're doing. U.S. Supreme Court, back in the day, it was really easy for them. They said the Constitution is but the body and letter of which the Declaration is the thought and the spirit. It's always safe to read the letter of the Constitution and the spirit of the Declaration of Independence. So those two things are not to be separated. Now, 
going back to the Constitution, going back to Article 5, how do we get the basis, the principles there? This is where we want to look at those, those 161 words, those, those six principles. Let me read those 161 words to you. You'll recognize them. Some of you may know them. It says very simply, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitles them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, and whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles. Now, those 161 words just gave you six tick marks that you can put on your list. Six things that they said, this is what government's supposed to do. And that's what they did. They gave tick marks. So let's go through them quickly. 160 words, the six principles. The first one talked about the laws of nature. It says, we feel a, an obligation to tell the other nations what we're doing because of the laws of nature and nature's God. Now, that phrase, the laws of nature and nature's God, interestingly enough, that says there is a fixed moral standard. We're judging what we're doing on a moral basis. What we're doing is separating from Great Britain and fighting for our independence. That is on the base. We're not just doing this because we had an urge when we got up this morning at 10 o'clock to do something different. There's a moral basis for why we're doing what we're doing. And that's the first thing they say is we want you to understand the moral basis. And it's the laws of nature and nature's God. Now that phrase, laws of nature and nature, and by the way, this well, the laws of nature, nature's God, is a direct quote out of the most famous law book of the day. It's Blackstone's Commentaries on the Law. Thomas Jefferson said American attorneys studied Blackstone's like Muslims study the Koran. They knew this. They knew it up and down. They knew those eight words Blackstone said. There's two sets of four words, the laws of nature and of nature's God. He went through and explained how those laws work, that they set up standards. Um, this is where we, we call them the laws of nature, but other terms that are often used include natural law and the laws of the heavens. Uh, you can look at lots of other philosophers, legal writers in that day, whether it's Montesquieu, whether it's Grotius, or whether it's Pufendorf, or, 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 or whether it's John Locke. I mean, they all talk about this. The, these were known terms for every American in that day. And so they're saying, all right, what we're doing is based on the laws of nature and of nature's God. This is what tells you that there is a moral right and wrong. And it's interesting that they point to nature as, as the basis for understanding that. Blackstone said, look, God created nature, and he put in nature what's right and wrong, but he also gave us the laws of nature's God, which is scriptures. Blackstone said, what you see in nature and what you see in the scriptures, the laws of nature and the laws of the God who created nature, that's where you get your rights and wrongs. So let's just take the laws of nature for a minute. If you take something like self-defense, it is a law of nature I don't care what species you are, it's the law of nature that you will defend your life, you'll defend the life of your family, and you will defend the life of your belongings, your possessions, your property, whatever that is. Being a cowboy, I know that. If I mess around with a, with a mare after she's had a colt, I will get a hoof print right in the middle of my forehead because I don't mess with her young. And she will chase me out of the barn. She thinks it's hers. I built it for her, but she thinks it's her house. I don't care what, I don't care whether you're a dog, I don't care whether you're a lion, I don't care whether you're a snake, what you, even a mouse will bite you and try to hurt you if you try to mess with their home and their young. That's a law of nature. I have the right of self-defense and no human law can change that. 
Which is why we had the Second Amendment added to the Constitution. This is a recognition that it is right to defend yourself. It's, I do not need government's permission to defend myself. That is a law of nature. All throughout all 10 million species in nature, that is a law of nature. The same thing with liberty. There are 10 million known species in nature, and, and today we're told there's not a single species in nature that enslaves any others. We used to be told up to about 10 years ago that, well, there are two groups of ants that enslave each other, and now they've said, no, that's really not true. It's really a symbiotic relationship. We can find no example anywhere in nature of enslaving any other, any other species ever. Well, this is where a lot of the founding fathers, this is why they were anti-slavery. America was the second nation in the history of the world to end slavery. Great Britain was first, we were second, we were the first nation to end the slave trade. And so all, all, the, all the yelling that's done today about how racist these guys were, of the guys that we know of founding fathers, about 250 of them, about 25% would be what we would call racist and slave owners and, and pro-slavery. Three-fourths of the guys were the guys who started the first abolition societies in America who led the abolition, and they did so because they said it's a law of nature that you're not to hold anyone else. You find anywhere in nature and show me where slavery exists. It violates the laws of nature. So that was a moral right and wrong. It was wrong. That's why we could say slavery was wrong and freedom is right. Liberty is right because it's a law of nature. So that's one of the things they pointed to. Same thing with association. You see, if I'm going back to my cowboy stuff, if I happen to be a black Angus cow, I can hang out with the white Charlet if I want to, or I can hang out with the red Santa Gertrudis, or I can hang out with the black and white Holsteins, or I can hang out with the brown Guernseys. I can choose who I want to hang out with. There's nothing in nature. As a matter of fact, if I'm a cow, I can hang out with the donkeys, or I can hang out with the deer, or I can hang out with the raccoons. I can choose who I hang That's the right of association, which is why we protected that in the First Amendment. It's a law of nature. All throughout nature, Whoever they hang out with, that's their choice. It's not the government who tells you who to hang out with or who you will and won't do business with, et cetera. So that's why we had the right of association protected in the First Amendment. You also have property. From the time any animal comes in the world, it will stake out what it considers to be its own property. Now, when it dies, uh, another animal is going to get it or something else. It's like when we die, the kids get it or we give it to the state or whatever we give it to. But while we're alive, we have private property. And that, that is something that is big in the Ten Commandments. I mean, you look at the Ten Commandments. One commandment says don't steal somebody else's private property. One of the Ten Commandments says don't even want somebody else's private property. God's big into protecting private property. That's a law of nature. You also have accumulation and profit. There is no instance in nature where that anybody in nature says, Mr. Squirrel, you need to share those acorns with somebody else. You've got way too many acorns there. <laughs> you get to... You get to accumulate and keep all you can, which is the free market system, not the socialistic system. See, the Constitution and the laws of nature go to what we call the free market system, the competition, ownership, etc. So all of these were things that we used to say, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. These are laws of nature. Anything that says I can't defend myself, that's wrong, because it's a law of nature that I can defend myself. So that's how we knew rights and wrongs. Now, it's interesting. That's the laws of nature, nature's God. That gave us a fixed standard for what's right and wrong. Here's the problem we have today. I do a lot of polling. We're in the middle of a massive national poll right now. We, we do a lot of polling for a lot of reasons. But we, what we know right now is in, in America today, two out of three Americans say that there is no absolute moral standard for what's right and wrong. There, now, do you know how hard it is to govern a nation when you can only get 33% of the nation to agree that something is right or wrong? 
It's really, really tough to do. And by the way, next generation is even tougher. It's four out of five among millennials and Gen Zers that say there is no, the only moral standard that exists is what I want and what I say, and that's anarchy. When everybody has their own standard, you can't have 330 million standards in America for what's right and wrong. You can't govern a nation that way. Because we are where we are now with a lack of any kind of moral sense of what's right and wrong, any laws of nature or nature. See, we can all have an opinion on how wide this platform is, and you're all welcome to your opinion until I pull out a tape measure and measure it. And when I pull out the tape measure and measure it, now we have an objective measurement. Now we have a standard. Now we know what truth is. The truth is that this is 19 feet, 8 inches. You can think it's 14 feet or 23 feet. I put a tape measure. See, once you have a standard, then you have something by which you can guide. And what we have in the culture today is very difficult because we have no moral clarity, no moral consensus. We are a very polarized nation. Uh, we are what... Lincoln, he talked about a house divided, quoting from Jesus, who talked about a house divided. We're a fragmented nation. We've not been this fragmented since 1856. We're polarized like we have not been in 150 years. And it's because we don't have any sense of what's right and wrong, which is where the declaration starts. So that's, that's why that first one is so important. So the laws of nature, nature's God, once you understand that there's a right and wrong, then you can establish absolute truth. And that's what the founder said. By the way, now that we have the laws of nature and nature's God, we hold these truths to be self-evident. See, they only got the truth after they established a standard for how to measure truth. And so that's where the declaration starts is in that measurement. The second thing that comes up is all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator. Now this is the public acknowledgement of a creator God, the laws of nature, nature's God. But they're now saying there is a creator. And this is a significant step in limiting government. The reason this is a, and I've been involved in eight cases of the U.S. Supreme Court, and they've all dealt with religious expression. And the court says, you know, we got people among us who don't believe in God, and there's people who do, and America just can't take a position between whether there is or isn't a God. We've got to be neutral on that. That's not what the founders said. They said this is the unanimous declaration of 13 United States of America. Every political entity that existed back then as a political entity said our political entity, we acknowledge there's a God. Now, why would they do that? Because that is the first step toward limited government. It is the characteristic throughout 5,500 years of recorded history that governments always try to make themselves into God. And when they do, they are the absolute supreme authority over everything that's right and wrong and what you can and can't do. And the founder said, no, we want every government to understand that there's something higher than them. There's a power higher. They are not the, the, the king of the hill. They're not the... So this acknowledgement that there is a creator God was a way to limit government. I love the way George Washington dealt with this. Uh, on the day that we finished the Bill of Rights, he called the entire nation to stop and acknowledge God publicly. This is the actual proclamation he had. We own about 100,000 documents from before 1812. This is one that we own. Washington explained why he did this. He said, it is the duty of all nations. And by the way, notice he said the word duty. The word duty in their dictionary is defined as a legally binding contractual obligation. He said it's a legally binding contractual obligation of all nations, not individuals. Political entities have a legally binding contract, contractual obligation to do four things. To acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. That's the duty of nations. So the idea that we're supposed to be ambivalent and, and neutral on whether there is or is not a God, not in their viewpoint, because that's the greatest way you have limited government. Every time you get a super secular government, you just look at Italy, you look at Morocco, you look at Spain, you look at Turkey, look at any of them, you'll never have a limited government, ever. You can't point to it. You can't point to France. You can't point to Germany. You can't point to the Scandinavian nations. It, it never works. And so that's what they understood. It was 5,500 years of history is, hey, look, we, we, we want government to understand it is not the top authority. So that was significant. And by the way, 
Um, the case was one at the U.S. Supreme Court seven weeks ago. You may not have heard much about it. It has already changed the cultural landscape. The Supreme Court rolled back 56 years of precedent on religious expression, and the court said, you know, we have held a position for 56 years that if a religious activity occurs in public, it is unconstitutional unless proven otherwise. They said, we now reverse that. If there's a religious activity that occurs in public, we now say that it's constitutional unless you can prove that it isn't. So as a result... As, as a result, you will see religious liberties start occurring in the next two to three years that you have never seen in your lifetime, ever. Uh, we had not only courts say, hey, keep that war memorial veteran cross up in Bladesburg Cross in St. Prince George's County, Georgia, uh, Prince George's County, Maryland, but while we're at it, we're not taking down that war memorial cross that's in Pensacola. The other courts said it had to be taken down. And while we're looking at it, we noticed that in Florida, football games used to open with prayers and they're not opening prayers anymore. And while we're talking about it, we just noticed that the, um, uh, the Lehigh, Pennsylvania has a cross in their city seal. And we, also, we always used to require those to be taken out. They don't have to take it out. I mean, the stuff that's already coming through the courts right now that's a lance shift from the last 56 years, it's going to blow your mind to start seeing what's happening. But this is, again, the government getting out of the way, going back to acknowledgement of God, which was what we believe was, was important. The third thing, it says they are endowed by their creator with certain unable rights. This is a belief that there are a certain set of rights that come from God. They define unable rights as a right which God gave you. It's a right that you get simply because you're born, simply because you're a human. This is a right that God gave to all of his kids, the right to liberty the right to life, all those things that, that the Creator gives all of His kids. Now, significantly, this is the second step in limiting government. And let me see if I can explain it because it deals with jurisdictions. On my ranch, I happen to have a red pickup. I like my red pickup a lot. I think everybody ought to have a red pickup. I was out working at the ranch yesterday with my son, Tim, and Tim, unfortunately, has a black pickup, which is not a cool thing to have. So I, while he was out there working, I, I spray painted his truck red because everybody needs a red truck. Actually, I didn't. Now, why, as much as I might like a red truck, why did I not spray paint his truck red? Because it does not belong to me. Anything that belongs to me, I can spray paint red. I can spray paint my pastures red. I can spray paint my cows red. I can spray paint my roads red. If it belongs to me, I can spray paint it red. What the, what the founders did here is said, hey, government, there's a certain set of rights you can't spray paint red. You cannot touch them because they don't belong to you. And because they don't belong to you, you cannot regulate them. So those are called inalienable rights. And they were put in the Bill of Rights by George Mason because he said these are the rights that came from our Creator God, and therefore government is not allowed to regulate them, which is why the right to self-defense is one of those in the Second Amendment. So what are inalienable rights? Well, Sam Adams, father of the American Revolution, said, look, we told you in the Declaration he said, we told you that among other inalienable rights, there was first a right to life, secondly to liberty, thirdly to property. We told you there were three of them at least, we said in addition to others. Eleven years later, when we added the Bill of Rights, George Mason worked so hard on this, they said, remember we told you 11 years ago, 1776, we, we, we told you that there were three among others? Well, here's some of the others. You've got the First Amendment right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. You have the Second Amendment right to defend yourself. You have the Third Amendment right to the sanctity of the home. You have the Fourth Amendment right to justice and courts. Actually, the First Amendment gives five rights. The Second Amendment gives two rights. There's about 16 
16 inalienable rights listed in the Bill of Rights. The three that are in the Declaration it gives you about 19 inalienable rights. The Founding Fathers said there's actually about two dozen they identified. One's called the right of expatriation. We don't talk about that much anymore, but it's a big deal that's happening right now where we have six states in the United States trying to limit the trade of nine other states in the United States. That violates expatriation. So, I mean, the Founders said these are things that governments are not allowed to touch. They can't spray paint these red because they didn't create these. These came from a creator God. So they're endowed by the creator certain inalienable rights was a third point. The fourth, the declaration said that to secure these rights, which rights? Inalienable rights. That to secure inalienable rights is why governments are instituted among men. So we now know the purpose of government is to protect inalienable rights. It's not just to secure the borders. It's not just to make sure we have a good income and a good economy. The first and primary purpose of government is to make sure you have the right to, to enjoy the rights that your creator gave you. Government's not supposed to stop that, the exercise of those rights. It's interesting, James Wilson, who's one of only six founding fathers, he signed the, six founding fathers signed the Declaration and the Constitution. He's a signer of the Constitution, second most active member of the Constitutional Convention. George Washington put him as an original justice on the Supreme Court. While he was on the Supreme Court, he started the first law school in American history. I actually have the law books that he did that, first law school. And in those law books, he's telling students why we had to have the American Revolution. And he told the students, this is the reason we did what we did. He said the principal object of government was to acquire a new security, the possession of those rights which we were previously entitled by the immediate gift of our all-wise, all-beneficent creator. You see, God gave us a certain set of rights, and it used to be that as British citizens we had that. We had the Magna Carta. We had the British Bill of Rights. We had all these rights. And then King George III came along and started taking them away from us. He started taking our guns away from us as he did at, Mag as he did at Williamsburg and as he did at Lexington and Concord. And he started taking our religious liberty away from us. He ordered a bishop. He put over all America. We were all required to be Anglicans. We couldn't choose our own faith. And it went through all these rights that we used to have. God gave them to us. As British citizens, we used to have them. And King George III took them away. So to create a new security for the possession of those rights that we used to have is why we did the American Revolution. We did the American Revolution so we could enjoy God-given rights that were given us that government was keeping us from enjoying. So that was the purpose of the revolution? Yeah, it wasn't about taxation without representation. That was one of 27 reasons, but it wasn't the big reason. They talked about the big reason. You'll also find that Sam Adams said the same thing. He said government was originally designed for the preservation of animal rights. You look at the first government ever created, it was the Noahide laws. It was the seven laws that create of civil government that Noah used to rule the world back then. Every law was to protect an animal right. The reason we had capital punishment was to protect your right to life. If someone takes your right to life away, we take away the person that takes away the right to life. See, everything was about protecting inalienable rights, and that was the purpose of government. So that's the first, fourth point. The fifth point says, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So the consent of the governed, and this is the one most people know about today, but it's the fifth in the list. The consent of the governed, I love the way George Washington talked about it. George Washington says, the fundamental principle of our Constitution requires that the will of the majority shall prevail. You have uh, Thomas Jefferson, who started the other political party of the day, who said the same thing. He says, the will of the majority, the natural law of every society, is the only sure guardian of the rights of man. Now, this is the fundamental principle of the Constitution, which is why, by the way, they did not allow judges to make national policy. 
because that was not the consent of the governed. As a matter of fact, today the, the judges are very good at turning over the consent of the governed. Laws that people pass, whether it be the 33 states that passed marriage laws, whether it be the states that are passing educational choice laws, whatever it is, the courts are saying, well, we're not elected, but you guys don't know what you really need, so let us tell you what you need. The founding fathers were explicit. As a matter of fact, there's the, the most frequently covered subject and the Constitution of the United States is how to get rid of activist judges. Did you know that? Six clauses in the Constitution deal with how to get rid of activist judges. That's more than any other subject. That was a big deal to them. They did not want people who were unelected telling the citizens what their policies would be. So the consent of the governed was the, the will of majority, majority rule, if you will. Now, let me take you through those first five principles because I want you to see something here. Remember the first one was absolute moral standard, uh, fixed right and wrong that establishes absolute truth. There's a divine creator who gives inalienable rights. Government exists primarily to protect those rights and the consent of the governed. Consent of the governed, which is the one we talk about today, the will of majority elections, that's number five on the list. Why? Well, because the consent of the governed doesn't matter when it comes to inalienable rights. Let's vote on whether there should be slavery. It really doesn't matter what your vote is on slavery. God said liberty is what we get. Let's vote on whether we can defend ourselves. No, vote doesn't matter. It can be 99 to 1, and I still have the right to defend myself whether people voted down or not. So you don't get to vote on inalienable rights. You also don't get to vote on moral rights and wrongs. Let's vote on whether rape should be a crime. Mm, no, that violates the laws of nature. Nature's God. We don't vote on that. So we don't get to vote on moral standards, and we don't get to vote on inalienable rights. So what do we vote on? You can vote on whether the sidewalk should be four feet wide, five feet wide, or six feet wide. You can vote on whether the speed limit should be 45, 55, or if you're in Texas, 85 is our speed limit. We have a lot of fun there. You can vote on, but you don't get to vote on the, see that's why it's number five in the list. People think the will of the majority is number one in the list. I get to set my own standards. No, this is how liberty works. This is why we've lasted 232 years because we've had a set of principles that didn't change with every whim that came across. Now, here's the sixth and final one. Whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, in other words, when a form of government says, well, we don't think there's rights and wrongs, and by the way, we don't think you should have the right to acknowledge God and your inalienable rights, we'll tell you what they are and what you can do with them. And, it's all the same. and we don't exist primarily to protect your rights, you exist to serve us in government. Anytime government becomes destructive of these ends, anytime the will of the majority is no longer significant, it says it's the right of the people to alter or to abolish government and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles. So the sixth principle is, if the government doesn't do the first five, you get to start a new one or change it. Now, we don't need a revolution every time government screws up. I mean, that's, that's not what we're after. But there is a principle in the Declaration that says the people have the right to change and make changes to their government. See, this is what came into the Constitution as, as Article 5. Oh, back up here. That was Article 5. Article 5 says, hey... We recognize that there's going to be changes you need to make from time to time. Here's how you can do it. And see, one of the things the Founding Fathers understood is you don't let the body who's out of control be in charge of making the changes. So when... The federal government has got itself out of bounds. The, the federal courts have got themselves out of bounds, although they're doing a great job of turning things around right now. I wish I could tell you all the good things happening in the courts. It's unbelievable. Uh, 147 new judges, and, and probably 90% of them are guys I would have chosen if I had the chance. It's, 
But this is the deal. They, wanted, they put a pressure relief valve in the Constitution so that we wouldn't have to throw the whole thing out and start again. We're giving you an ability to do something other nations haven't had, and that's the ability to make changes when your government gets out of control. And we're not going to wait on Washington, D.C. to make the changes because they're most likely the ones that got out of control. And that's why the Ninth and the Tenth Amendment were added to the Bill of Rights because, hey, by the way, in case we miss saying something, the people and the states are in charge. And, and so that's what you have with Article 5 is the people and the states get to make changes. We're not just relying on the federal government to make the changes. We think the people should have. That's part of checks and balances. Checks and balances is an outside entity being able to exert leverage and control and restraint on, uh, on an out-of-balance entity. And that's why we say the president can exert, re exert restraint on, on Congress or, or the courts, and the courts can help restrain Congress and the president. Congress can help restrain the courts and the president. We do that so that the other entities have some control. That's what, that's what the, the Article 5 was all about. It gives the people the ability, people and the states, the ability to come in and leverage and say, hey, we need some changes made here because this thing is way out of bounds. It's no longer doing the fundamental principles that it's supposed to be doing. So that's why that's so significant. So in closing this down, the Constitution, I would argue, is a superb document. It doesn't need to be fundamentally changed. We can make changes along the ways we have with 27 amendments. Another way to make changes is through Article 5, letting the states have their voice. We've kind of emasculated the states over the last 20 to 30 years, and they don't even know why they exist anymore. They don't even know why the Senate used to exist, and they're starting to push back. Uh, the courts right now will tell you, in addition to what they've done on religious liberty, the courts are very much in the mode of starting to give things back to the states in a way we've never seen before. So. So we have more opportunity now for the states to be able to break up some of the stuff that needs to be broken up and, and states and you know, us as individuals working at that level. But I like the Constitution. I'll close with three quotes. George Washington said this. He said, the Constitution is the guide which I will never abandon. Good move. Those principles have worked 232 years and they'll, they'll work as long as we continue to apply them. They'll only start, stop working when we stop using them. It's like saying, you know, gravity is 500 years old, let's get something else. It, you know, it's not going to happen. So as long as we use the principles, they're going to keep working. I love what Abraham Lincoln said about this. Abraham Lincoln said, don't interfere with anything in the Constitution. That must be maintained for it is the only safeguard of our liberties. You know, at that point, the Constitution was coming up on, on 80 years old and already had proven itself. Final quote I'll give you is from Daniel Webster, the great defender of the Constitution, probably the greatest attorney in any generation in American history. Daniel Webster said, hold on to the Constitution and to the republic for which it stands. Miracles do not cluster. And what has happened once in 6,000 years may not happen again. Hold on to the Constitution. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.